Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, the travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London, you just never know. This week we come to you from Hawaii at the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua in Maui uh, to celebrate their annual Whale Watch Week and uh, Whale Tail Week. My next guest, I'm telling I'm so honored to have him on the show. When you want to talk about underwater photography, you talk to Flip Nicklin. He lives in Alaska, but he's here for a lot of time at this time of the year because it's whale season. Flip, welcome. It's great to be here and uh, great to be through another whale season. And look, you just showed up here and showed me a picture you just showed me on your iPhone that you took, what, three hours ago? Uh, yesterday morning. Yesterday morning. Yeah. The whales are here, aren't they? Whales are here in gangbusters. It's whale soup out there. It really is. Yeah. Whale soup. Yes. And they're coming pretty close to shore. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, people can see easily from shore when pe- people are trying to load up the boats in the morning, they're craning their necks to see the blows offshore. And sometimes you don't have to crane your necks. You just look straight out. And you no, see they're right in the harbor. They're right right at the harbor mouth and going through the ships. It's uh, lots and lots of cows and calves. You know, it's always amazing to me, and I shake my head at this all the time. If you look at the mariposas in Mexico, you know, the butterflies that come back every year to the exact yeah, same yeah, location, yeah, yeah. traveling literally thousands of miles, the whales are doing the exact same thing. Exactly, and and we don't know quite how they're doing it, but we're really glad there are. And the numbers, it's a great success story. When we started in the 70s, there were maybe 1,500 North Pacific humpbacks, and now it's over 25,000. It's so, a great success. So the protections that have been imposed by the world organizations are starting to work. 
they, they're working really, really well. At, at, I mean, at, you still have issues with Japan. You still have issues with Iceland. But the, the big issues now probably aren't hunting. It's probably more habitat, uh, fight for prey, things like that. I mean, hunting is certainly an ethical or moral issue, but the environmental issues are the same issues for all of us in the oceans. Now, you're one of the founders of the Whale Trust. I am. Explain yes. how you came about to do that and what exactly it is that you do. Well, I started uh, doing whale stories for National Geographic in the late 70s. Uh, started traveling around the world doing all kinds of whales and dolphins. In, I came, got ahead of the game a little bit in 1996 and decided this was the best place to do whale research. And got together with Jim Darling, one of the pioneers for whale research, put in 10 grand. We came back to see if it was worthwhile, and it was really worthwhile. We came back and started looking at a really small program that grew and grew and grew. And uh, But it's a program that does what? It started out looking at social function of song. Why are whales singing? Looking at breeding behavior. And I remember that when you guys did your first work on that, it, the acoustics on that were unbelievable. The 1979 issue my dad worked on, where they had the record in there, the largest first pressing of a record, 10 million records. And you could hear and the whales, whales by the way, singing. And they're still waiting for the royalties. I'm sure they are. Yeah. But we, we, we were doing that starting right around 2000. We started uh, working with Megan Jones, who's now our director, and she was looking at female role. So we're looking at, at uh, humpbacks, why they're singing, what choices females are making. And my job was coordinating photographing the work we're doing and the behaviors whales are doing. And has the behavior changed in those years? The, the behavior, well, we don't really know. I mean, one of the things trying to figure out what normal is, was it normal when there were 1,500 animals or is normal when you have 25,000 and, and there's a lot more there. animals you, you that are there? Yeah. My dad, my dad was one of the real pioneers. My dad rode a whale in 1963 and sort of became famous around whales. But he did a number of stories where you just tried to shoot any whale picture and talk about any science you knew. When he came in 1999, we were showing him all these behaviors. He could, were they always doing those behaviors? Because it was a new thing to have a camera and look at the behavior you were talking about. Right. And now, what you didn't realize was that when you had the camera down there, then they were really talking about it. <laughs> yes, I'm sure. Yeah. And they were saying, what's this guy doing with a camera? Well, well, that whole idea. And, and one of the things you're always thinking about is how much is me being here changing that behavior. And that's a... That's a something we're very conscious of. And the thing is, you won't even know the answer to that either. Right. Well, when the, when early on, we had a hill station, and they'd look at what whales were doing before you got there, while you were there, and after you left. And, and that was what, really important And what stuff. happened? Well, it, sometimes things changed, sometimes they didn't. But one of the things is you found that there are so many things in the whale world that you didn't see above water that many of the changes that we thought we were doing was actually other animals underwater that were causing the change. Exactly. Now, speaking of change and our impact... You know, you get so angry when you read a story like I did in the last two months about the whale that, that washed up with 200 pounds of garbage in its stomach. I mean, plastic. Well, and those are the big issues. When we talked about hunting, the big issues are, are prey, are, are habitat, are pollution, uh, temperatures in the ocean changing. Those are the big things to worry about. One of the things that I noticed, not too far from here, on Midway, on Midway Island, which for those people who don't know, Midway is actually an island located midway between San Francisco and Tokyo. It also happened to be the most decisive naval battle site in the history of the world back in World War II. And we had a big a Navy base there. We still have a big base there, but it's not used by the government. It's used by fish and wildlife with huge long runways and all sorts of stuff. And when you got out there and you start walking the beach, two things you notice. First of all, you're the only one on the beach. Because the Navy left, and there are only maybe 100 people on the entire island, on an island where they used to have maybe 5,000 people based there. 
But then as you get closer to the shoreline, you're seeing the carcasses of the dead Goonie birds and their stomachs are split open. And what's in them? Cigarette lighters, six-pack uh, beer holders, the plastic beer holders, I mean, fishing nets. I mean, and it's right there. You can't avoid it. It's, it's literally in your face. Certainly trash in the sea is one of those big issues in the, the trash gyre in the North Pacific. And I think all of those things, one of the things whales do, I think, is they're a great iconic animal to bring our attention to all those other things that affect us too. But, but for some reason, we've decided we really love whales and all the things that affect them. What's the one overriding lesson you've learned from whales? Boy, probably the biggest thing we've learned is that the animal can keep on going, can change and adapt, that you have animals that have had the world change around them and have continued to succeed, have continued to adapt and do pretty darn well. Now, when you've been swimming with the whales, so you do a lot, right? We, we, we do. Our project, my part of it is largely being in the water with whales, all under federal and state permits and things to work right. close for education. But yeah, swimming with whales has been my job since 1979. Right. Now, great, great job. If you look at the orcas up in, uh, up in British Columbia, you know, and you understand the way that these pods work, they're, they stay in the same family. I mean, right? You could name them, and they do. Yes, yes, right? exactly. That's the second job I did on whales for National Geographic was on those whales. Right. And now, the whales that you were just with yesterday, they're coming back to the same location. yes. You're tagging them. Yes. You name them. Well, and mostly we're tagging them by taking pictures of their tails. Right. So we have an individual ID, like a thumbprint on those animals. Because you can and see the, the striation marks. You can see the, the it, scars, if you will. And you're right. You tend to see the same animals often at the same time. And the, the, with the facial recognition we're using to match tails, we're getting a much better pictures of where they're going, when they're going, and who they're with. Okay. So now i got to ask the really stupid question, and please forgive me. You just mentioned facial recognition. Yes. If they're all coming back at the same time, and they're all coming back to more or less the same location, and you're in the water with them, do they recognize you? I think sometimes they do. Whether they recognize me or recognize the boat that I'm in, I think there's some By the of the sound of the boat. But there, there's some of that. But one of those things is when you think about the whales coming here, they're not all coming and going at the same time. It's like a river of whales coming and going. It's like the hotels. They're always full, but it's not the same folks. But that group of when they're coming and when they're going may change. And that, that's one of those things we'd love to know. We're just getting the gear to really make those matches, not just with what science is doing, but what vacationers are doing, taking pictures on whale watches, putting into things like Happy Whale and going, the whale I saw was also here, here, and here, at this time, that time, and this time. Right. And, and for those people who are doing the serious research and tagging them, it's geo-tracking time. I mean, you know exactly where they are. It's, it's geo-tracking. It's last last couple of years, we've been sending remote vehicles from here to Mexico, listening for whales and finding singing whales a thousand miles east of here towards Mexico. The whole picture, high tech is giving us all these great tools to get a better idea of what whales are doing. My next guest knows a little bit about going places. He's the director of expedition photography for National Geographic for their entire fleet of ships and for Lindblad ex expeditions as well. Ralph Lee Hopkins, you sound like a, it sounds like you're a country music star. Ralph Lee Hopkins, you play guitar? I don't, but my younger brother does. See, I knew I knew there was something in there. But if I'm taking a look at all the the materials I'm getting right now, we're seeing an explosion in expedition ships. We're seeing on every different brand level in every different location. And if we go back, oh, let's go all the way back to the days of the Love Boat, back in 1978, you maybe had 40 ports that cruise ships called on around the world. Now it's over 1,400. You're going to ports, I think, that didn't even know they had ports 
Yeah, well, in Limblad Expeditions, we, you know, you know the history of Sven Ulf Limblad, his dad. And his dad. First purpose-built expedition ship, the Explorer, that went to places, and it was the first ship with interested travelers to Antarctica, to Galapagos, to Papua New Guinea. And so I think now with the explosion of media, these places, people want to go more places, but it's really about the experiences, I think, for, and I'm not talking about the big ships, but the people that travel with us, we do true expeditions where we're going and we're exploring, you're not on a schedule, because right. expedition is now a buzzword. Right, and let's get down to a definition of terms. First of all, you are a ship, but you're not just passing by, you're hanging out. You are spending time, and you're waiting for the right time. Exactly. I mean, there's no dance floor. Everything's about nature. Wait a minute. There's no dance floor? There's no dance floor. All right. Well, maybe I'll go. Yeah. I mean, we show videos at night, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Rock and um, roll. But yeah, and it's really um, defined what we do. There's enough time in most of our schedules in the places that we go. So if we're going to Antarctica, you've got to be in port on the day to leave, and you've got to get back on the day to disembark. But in between, you're exploring, and there's places you want to go. And so if you are crossing the Drake Passage and there are whales... You're going to stop, stop by to see them. And you're going to watch them if the conditions are right. So, so you go on every one of those trips with a plan B, C, and D. It's not just a <laughs> Nassau seven-day cruise. No, and that's exactly right. So everyone from the captain on down to the hotel manager, I mean, we delay meals, imagine that, for whales. Yeah, I get it. But I then get we're it. back in time But, for you know, that's allowed. dangerous to delay a meal on a cruise ship. It's, you could have a mutiny. Well, I think for our, our travelers, it's more about cocktail hour. Exactly. Oh, yeah, you can't delay that. No, cocktails are the whales. Time cocktail hour. Exactly. Do the whales know this? It's amazing how nature provides. I mean, nature, <laughs> things, when you're out on the water, things really happen. And, and we do have that saying, something amazing on this trip is going to happen. Exactly. We just don't know what it is. And, you know, if you take a look at, you know, pioneering that you did with Lindblad uh, in the Galapagos and, of course, at the Antarctic, but now we're looking at places around the world like... Papua New Guinea, we're looking at the Russian Far East, we're looking at uh, coastal Africa, which never really was explored in that way before. Well, and that's true. I mean, if you go back to Antarctica, um, what, five years ago, there were maybe 15, 20, 25,000 people going there. Now it's up to almost 60,000 people going into Antarctica. So now, now yeah. we're always looking for that next best place to explore. But with Limit Expeditions, we have kind of staked our geography. We, we are going new places. But there's places that we keep returning to because we know them so well. And the other thing is this, you can manage them. Meaning, you know, one of the biggest, you know, issues is at what point do you, you know, reach the limits of diminishing returns? Because in the Galapagos, they put a limit on the number of people, the number of ships. You're seeing that happening in other places of the world that weren't necessarily considered ports for expedition cruises like Venice, you know, where they're saying, okay, we've, we've, we've reached the saturation point. No, and, that, and that's true. So you do have to be nimble that, that way, and you have to be looking to the next best place to travel. Um, but for Limblad and National Geographic, it does come back to those, you know, the explosion of travel in the Arctic, for example. I mean, the, the whole thing about climate change, people, the educated people that travel with us, they want to get to these places because they know it's changing. So um, and let's it's not forget, two places. Speaking of climate change, the Northwest Passage. Being able to, to, to navigate that once unnavigable passage. And the Northeast Passage. We're going to be doing, for, for the first time, it has been done by expedition ships just in the last couple of years, but we're doing it for the first time this summer, doing the Northeast Passage. Which is what? So starting from Norway, and then going towards Franz Josef Land, down into Murmansk, and then going counterclockwise to Nome. <laughs> Thank you.
disclosure, I've known my next guest for more than 30 years. Uh, we have known each other all over the world, but in particular, it first happened right here in Maui at an amazing restaurant uh, and one that continues to be amazing. She's one of the really cutting edge uh, chefs of America. And the name of the restaurant is the Haile'i Miley General Store. Uh, and uh, it's one of those restaurants that you have to find. It, it, it's not along a, a major highway. It's no big neon sign. Uh, in the old days, there was no sign on the street. There was no traffic light on the street. You had to know a guy to know a guy to know a guy to tell you which time to turn left and to find it through the sugarcane fields in the old World War II Quonset huts. But it is still there today, and she's still there today, Beverly Gannon. <laughs> How about that as an introduction? Really good. Thanks, Petey. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, in the entire history of this show, no one has ever called me Petey. So let that be a lesson to me. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Hey, listen, you know what else? What? Haliti Miley was never on a map. You really? could never find Haliti Miley on a map well, in Hawaii till I, I was I'm gonna there. I'm going to give you one last compliment, and that is every time someone would come to Maui and they would rent a car, because you can't just get a bus there, and I'd say, okay, you got to go to this restaurant. Oh, but it's like 40 minutes away from our hotel, or it's an hour. I said, you got to go. And I had to drag them kicking and screaming on the phone to go. Right. And then the cool thing was that the next day I said, where'd you go to, where'd you go to dinner tonight? They went back. Oh, no, we have people who will drive every night, I hate to say that, from the Ritz. Yeah. To the restaurant. We've had we've had a few I did that couples. last night. It was an hour. Yeah. We have had a few couples that literally are here for five or six nights and they eat with us four nights. <laughs> Not day, nights I they come it. over. Well, let's talk about cuisine and let's talk about Maui. Because when I first met you, it was the days of Hawaiian regional cuisine and new age chefs that were for the first time, doing a new approach to food. Well, it was fresh food. Yeah. It was food that was grown here. For years, when we first moved here in 1980, you know, you were still getting, you aren't going to believe this, but it was frozen fish and heavy French sauces on that frozen fish. To hide it. All the vegetables were coming in from the mainland, so they were on a boat in a container that was not refrigerated. I remember when, on another island, when they opened up the Hyatt Regency Waikoloa, their consumption of produce was so huge that not only was it coming over by barge, it was picked in California, then uh, vacuum sealed, flash frozen, and, and it came over at, like weeks later. And if you ordered a salad, they popped open this bag. You absolutely. Actually pop. Absolutely. Yeah. It was crazy. And once we started the Hawaii regional cuisine movement, it literally changed the face of food. In Hawaii, you know, we got together with the farmers, we got together with the fishermen, we got together with the ranchers. And you know what, all of a sudden, the food that was being grown here, which there was things being, there were things being grown here, they were being shipped to the mainland, and we were getting the crappy stuff. Yeah. All of a sudden, it was all staying here. And it was, it was an amazing evolution of taste of what people, what you could feed people. I would never put a tomato on my menu. Now I have four tomato farmers here growing heirloom tomatoes that come to me ripe. You know, they're just picked and they're ripe. Um, the same as, oh my goodness, now we have Mahi Pono, which is a company that bought the 35,000 acres from A&B where sugarcane was being grown. And they are coming in and big time clearing land, uh, putting nutrients into the soil, they're growing potatoes here. You could never get a quantity of potatoes here, so everything had to come in from the mainland. Now, I mean, they've been bringing me boxes saying, try this, how's this? And they're really good. Um, so 
It's a whole different story now with food. But at here. the end of the day, you're still an island. I'm still here. No, not you. I'm saying Maui is still an island. Maui is still an island. Absolutely. And infrastructure is still a challenge. Well, this last year, we had 3 million visitors in Maui alone. That's a lot. Um, So what, as somebody who wants to preserve the land and preserve what we have here, you know, it's great that we're growing all this product. Um, We just hope that we don't, kind of overfish our island, you know, where we, we have too many people coming, trying to do too many things, um, you know, bringing in, people come in and they bring, they bring their plastic bags and they bring their plastic water bottles and they leave them here. And then what are we supposed to do with them? It's hard enough with what we generate here, although the good news for Maui is there's no more plastic bags here. There's no more styrofoam here. Um, we're getting ready to pass another law where there will be no more disposable plastic anything allowed on this island. Not even a plastic shopping bag. Not oh we don't we haven't had plastic shopping bags in two years. Wow. It's all paper. It's all recycled paper. Um, you know, I, I would hope that at some point we really sit back and look at what can the island bear. You know, the good news is we are growing a lot of food here. You know, we are kind of taking care of our land now and taking care of the oceans now. And I think because we are an island, we might be a little ahead of the curve from the mainland. One of the things I've always noticed about Hawaii, obviously a young U.S. state, only got its statehood, I think, in 1959, uh, is that most people who visit really do not embrace the history. They don't understand the, the, how it goes back way before statehood, and and how it was it, it was a royal it was a kingdom. It was it was we had we had royalty. Um, there's still the palace in Oahu, but in Maui, the same thing applies in terms of decades and decades and decades and generations of history. And for those guests who never seem to get out of the resort, they never get a chance to really come close up and personal with that history. My next guest is going to change all that. Sissy Lake Farm, the executive director of the Maui Historical Society. There is history here. There is. Aloha, Peter. So nice to be here. And likewise to have you. Uh, You can go basically, what, 40 feet from this hotel? Yes. And tell the story. Yes, exactly. I mean, we're talking about ancient civilizations, we're talking about sacred ground, we're talking about volcanic activity, everything. Everything. So for people who are not, you know, inundated with this, right, what's the biggest surprise to them about the history that they don't know? I think it's that our, um, well, specifically speaking from Wailuku, is where I work, um, that that beautiful Iao Valley is a sacred place that has been sacred for for many many years, and that it is the rich traditions that our ali'i were so much so that our ali'i our chiefs were buried in that particular valley, and um, it's also a very crucial place of where the waterways of Navai Eha, which are four sacred waters that we consider very important, and were the seed of what drove our agricultural um, existence in times of old. And um, so our ali'i, our chiefs, were very akamai, very smart about where they chose to live. 
and are, and where they chose to die right and where they chose to die exactly uh, so much so that the late chief Kahikili our last reigning chief of Maui took residence right there where our museum currently stands today and by the way when you go back speaking of history you guys only started back in 1951 exactly right it was yes. part of the, it was the Maui women's uh, women's club exactly yeah. yes. so you guys get together and say hey nobody's telling the story right yeah, so it was a it was a group of missionary women that decided to get together and they felt it was really important that the historic aspects of Maui were going to be captured. And so they did and created the Maui Historical Society. But the we have the site that we are currently at, which is we call Haleho Ike Ike, which translates as the house of display. Um, it's been in our existence um, and we've been the caretakers of it since 1957. And so, but the house itself was probably one of the first um, structures in Maui that was built um, in 1833. And people can still see it. Yes, and it's still there and it still exists and yes. But it's not more than just seeing it, it's also hearing it and that brings me up to the subject of language, the traditional Hawaiian language. Yes. And for so many years, at least for at least two decades that I know, it, there were so many days that people were talking about it being an extinct. It, it was it was it was falling apart. Yes, it was. I would say there was the last resurgence of Hawaiian speakers and Hawaiian experts back in I would say the '60s and '70s that they were scared that the language was no longer our mother tongue and it wasn't being acknowledged because and it wasn't being handed down exactly. And there were people that spoke the language, but in time during that time the emphasis of the American you know way and and doing things through the English language was very important so it wasn't but for a few key kupuna or elders that felt the importance of the Hawaiian language is bringing it back. So there's a resurgence that have, has happened since then till now. Is it being taught in the schools? It is. There was a point that it wasn't. There was a point that it wasn't correct. And I have to say that my children, I have three children, and they all are products of a Hawaiian language-based school. And we're not talking pidgin Hawaiian. No, we're not. We're talking real Hawaiian. Hawaii, real Hawaiian language, correct. Wow. And here at the hotel or when people visit Maui, is there an opportunity for them to immerse themselves the language as well yeah there are opportunities here Clifford the general manager and as well as the uh, cultural advisor here has made it a very capable and definitely people that are interested in the language are able to take it and throughout Maui there are places the different hotels through schools there are different ways where people can plug in to understand or at least even just to hear the language and the thing is when you hear the language it's also the rhythm of the language yes it's very rhythmic it's very poetic and lovely it's not very, hard it, it's on the, very romantic actually yes isn't yes, it? Yes, it is. Oh, sissy. <laughs> <laughs> but the bottom line is, the good news is it's coming back. Yes, it is. And for people visiting here for the first time, given your historical perspective, what's the biggest surprise to them that they discover about Maui? I think it's it's really our history, like that we had a Hawaiian monarchy, we had kings and queens, and that many of them traveled the world. I think that's, to me at the museum, that's an area that people had had no idea, and that our Iolani Palace was the first to have electricity before even the White House. To me, that's kind of, that's cool. We're out here playing with whales, or should I say the whales are playing with us. Uh, this is the time of year to do it. Uh, the, the migration is in full swing starting in Alaska and heading all the way south. 
and west. And, uh, and of course, in a few more months, they're going to go right back to go eat up north and up east. Uh, joining me now is someone who knows a lot about mammals, a lot about behavior of the humpback whale, Dr. Mark Lammers, who's the research coordinator at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Agency. Administration. Administration. <laughs> I, I never get it right. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, NOAA. Those are the guys, by the way, who help predict the weather. Uh, Hawaiian Islands, humpback whale, National Marine Sanctuary. A great thing that it's a National Marine Sanctuary, Doctor. It really is, yeah. Um, this is a very special place, and uh, it's very important that we have a sanctuary here for the whales here in Hawaii. How long has it been a sanctuary? Uh, it was established in 1992 by Congress, so it's, it's been around uh, you know, a couple of decades now. Yeah, and, 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 and expanding, by the way. Um, well, yeah, we we're, we're, the boundaries right now are staying where they are, um, but uh, but the the role of the sanctuary has certainly expanded uh, over the years, uh, particularly because you know we are managing a, a species that uh, that really needs some protection. You know, when you tax when you, when you track their behavior and you track their physical migration, mm-hmm. what's what's always amazing to me is that it's clockwork almost. You know, it's like the mariposas, the butterflies that go from Canada all the way down to Mexico, and they never fail to get there. And these are journeys of thousands of miles, just like the journey of the humpback whale. It is, yeah. It's quite amazing that, uh, considering that they have to travel about 3,000 miles to get here, that um, that they do show up, um, I would say, more or less like clockwork, because we have seen some variation in both the timing and the number of whales over the past few years. But uh, but generally speaking, uh, come February, um, the Hawaiian Islands tend to be filled with humpback whales. And when it's not clockwork, that's when the alarm bells go off, because there may be some external reasons in the environment, in their diet, in the quality of the water that may be affecting that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we do expect some variation, of course. Uh, you know, nature tends to vary things up a bit. But when that variation kind of goes beyond what we would expect, that's when we start to get concerned. And we have seen some of these changes over the past uh, few years. Is it safe to say that the humpback whale itself is the, sort of like the great thermometer or the great indicator of the of the quality of the ocean? Yeah, absolutely. I, I do think that's, that's a really good analogy uh, because... Um, you know, humpback whales, uh, because they're migratory animals and because they span almost the entire North Pacific, uh, they, they, they occupy waters uh, in, in Alaska, up at the high latitudes, and then they come down into the warm tropical waters. And so they experience everything that's going on in the ocean. And so what's happening with them is a really good um, you know, way to tell the story of what's happening in the ocean. Because you can't look at anything in isolation, meaning it's not just the quality of the air, it's not just the quality of the water or the temperature of the water for those people who want to talk about, you know, growing water temperature levels, mm-hmm. climate change. Uh, it's also the chemical content of, of, of the water and physical garbage. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's all of it. Um, you know, we, we the ocean faces a, you know, a variety of different threats rating, ranging from, of course, you know, ocean temperatures, but also ocean acidification. And as you mentioned, um, you know, there's a lot of garbage, sadly, in the water. And for example, just northwest of or northeast of Hawaii, we have the Great Garbage Patch. And of course, our humpback whales have to cross that in order to get here. And that reminds me of the story that I saw recently of the of the whale that died and was and, and basically washed up with 200 pounds of trash in its stomach. Yeah, that was a, a sperm whale. So of course yeah. they they consumed um, you know it probably tried to consume things you know, trash uh, because that's you know that's part of their uh, eating habits are are to try different things and perhaps be a little bit more curious and so. So it's just an example of the kinds of, you know, things that these whales now are dealing with, um, you know, having to try to pick 
between trash to, to find their food. Now, as long as I can remember, I remember you know, back to when I was maybe 10 years old, the news coming on that they were able to, on an acoustic level, hear the whales communicate, hear them sing, hear the song of the whales. So that's not news to me, and it's not news to you. What's fascinating to me is have we gotten to the point of understanding those songs? Yeah, well, uh, there's been a lot of uh, interest in the whale song, particularly the humpback whale song, which is a very, very beautiful, very haunting uh, type of type of song, and and people have asked themselves for a long time, what what does it mean? And um, you know, we've gotten closer to some answers. We know that it's a display uh, that's tied to reproduction. We do suspect that it's a display, probably to other males, perhaps competitors, um, and, to stay away. Well, not necessarily to stay away, but what we suspect that it may have something to do with uh, communicating their fitness. And so, you know, kind of you, you know, basically saying, hey, you know, listen to my song, listen to how good it is. I've got a better song than this guy. Uh, perhaps exactly, yeah. So, so that's sort of what we're thinking. Um, you know, maybe one of the, at least the major functions of the song. We've learned so much, for example, about dolphins and their innate radar sense or sonar sense, I yeah. should say, not radar, sonar, yeah. where the, their, their ability acoustically to just know distance and speed and time based on audible, you know, on the audible aspects. Um, have we been able to fine tune that with the whales? So the, the, the dolphins, of course, um, have a, we have a little bit easier time studying dolphins because they're smaller and we can bring them into kind of a laboratory setting. And, and they also and interact so much they, easier. They, they interact, and so we're able to you know, craft experiments to study some of these things. Uh, and so we've learned a lot over the past several decades um, about dolphin sonar, for example. When it comes to whales and whale communication, um, when we're talking about a 45-ton animal, um, we're, we're much more limited in, in the kind of you know, scientific questions that we can ask. You know, they're largely li you know, limited to observations that we can make. Um, I mean, we can certainly you know, kind of craft certain hypotheses and then look for evidence for them, but it's, it's just much diff more difficult to, to, to make progress like you would with dolphins. Well, the good news, if there is good news, is that in 2016, the humpbacks were taken off the endangered species list. Yeah, well, that only applies to a specific um, distinct population segment, meaning the whales that come to Hawaii to, to winter. Right. Those specific, that particular population was taken off of the U.S. endangered species list. Uh, there are still uh, uh, three other population segments in the North Pacific that are still listed under the Endangered Species Act and are still receiving that protection. See, if it was up to me, I'd keep them all on the list. Yeah, well, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's always a tough decision to take a species off the list because, of course, they receive protection and you, know, and you want them to continue to receive protection so that they stay, their, their population stays healthy. But on the other hand, you also don't want a species to remain on the list forever. Um, you know, you want to show that the, that the act itself is, is being successful and that conservation measures are, are having, you know, their desired effects. One of the things that is a continuing story, and thankfully a continuing subject, is maintaining the culture, the true culture of Hawaii, uh, as it's either handed down or not handed down from generation to generation, family to me member to family member, that goes way beyond a luau or a hula or a complimentary lay greeting. Uh, and it also has to do with language and family history 
and uh, the arrival of, of the Pacific Rim cultures, and all of those things that make up Hawaii. And my next guest, I never come to Maui without, without having him on the show. He's actually the cultural advisor for the Ritz-Carlton, but he really is the onboard historian when it comes to the, to the culture of the islands, and that's Clifford Nioli. How are you, sir? I'm fine, sir. Thank you, and welcome back And home. nice to see you again. So you just heard my introduction. Uh, what I learned when I first came to Hawaii back in, I have to say it, 1973, uh, was something that uh, I, I learned a couple of words, right? I learned pow, mm. right? Which means we're done. Uh, but I also learned talk story. And that is something that you continue to do. Yes. yes. Explain what talk story means. Talk story is sharing. It is um, knowing when information is needed in terms of healing or a time to make a person laugh or a time when you when you become sad with them. It's, it's about sharing what the other person has to offer, what you have to give. And talk story is... Um, it's, it's of course it's it's basically just sharing what you have on your mind uh, with each other to for for a greater good. Right, but at the same time, when somebody's talking story to me, mm-hmm. they could be telling me the story of their family. Yes, they could be telling me the story of their history, yes. of their schooling, mm-hmm. what they do for a living. But it's not like, hey, what are you doing? It's, right. it's a little bit different than that. Right, it's almost a declaration. For instance, our the art forms of tattoo on our on our body. People always and ask although that. this is radio, you've got some tattoos. Yes, so people always ask me, what does it mean? Well, I say I have to say, well, it stands for my family, and it's. Huna, it's we like to keep it secret, but it's not a decorative thing. It's a declaration of life. But if you look at all the Pacific cultures, whether it's the Fijians or the Tongans, or all even all the way down to Papua New Guinea, all the way going east now to mm-hmm. Hawaii, every one of those cultures talk story. Yes, every one of those cultures told that story either on wooden storyboards or on taupa. Sure, it's because we did not have a written language. Everything came from the ha. Everything came from inside out. So your voice was your contract it was your gold it was that was to be taken as the extreme uh, agreement the contract you once you said it you can't take it back so talking story is something that's very important and held dearly to our hearts and the minute we stop talking story we lose that culture correct and the minute you stop talking story you know you're in trouble <laughs> are we in trouble no we're good we're still good yes sir how many visitors to maui talk story not many not many, but it's on the increase, and I'm finding this through all my years uh, being here, is that a lot more questions in depth are being asked, asked by our visitors. A lot more experiences in depth are, asked, are being asked by our visitors. They want to find themselves over here. It's a very different attitude that's happening here now in Hawaii, and I think it has a lot to do with the circumstances going around the world and you know all, all these topsy-turvy things that's going on, but they come here with their families now. So it's more than just hanging out at the pool exactly, and, and, and taking the pig out. Right. It's it's going barefoot on the beach and holding hands and listening to the roar of nothingness. It's finding themselves in contemplation while they're here. Now, how much of Hawaiian music is storytelling? Lots of it. Um, I'd say 95% is based on people, uh, events, uh, storytelling, um, the rest of it may become pure entertainment of, of travels, etc. What happened while they were in Japan or New York City, whatever the adaptable situation. But for the Hawaiian mele, um, most of it has the Hawaiian to do what mele, the Hawaiian song. Thank you. Uh, goes back to history. It goes back to, and we were very poetic. We may be talking about a flower in a song, but we're talking about a beautiful love on the inside. We may be talking about a raging river in a song, but we may be talking about troubled times on the inside. So it's a very poetic um, way that we have of expressing ourselves. And how does Talk Story deal with climate change and rising water levels? 
Well, what we do is we, the talk store that we have are, are legends and um, proverbs that may, may warn us that there's a great change coming and we have to keep our maka, we have to keep our eyes open and our ears open all the time and watch for these changes and be prepared. Um, as a culture practitioner now, I am hearing it more and more from our kupuna, our elders, saying pay attention because nature's talking to us. They and are. what is nature saying? Uh, besides pay attention, it's time for a change. It's time to replenish. It's time to make sure that we are not forsaking all these beautiful gifts that nature has given us and using it just for the, 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 the profit or just using it for uh, an industry. And at the same time, we're wiping out everything. It's, 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 it's like your parents. They, they give you everything they can while they're alive. Nature does the same thing. They're giving us everything, shelter, food, medicine, clothing. If we don't take care of them, they have no ability to take care of us. And we're seeing that challenged every single day. Absolutely, absolutely. But we're trying here in Hawaii to maintain our our um, our natural way um, with our our community givebacks to the mountain and to the ocean education. We're not only teaching people about fish, etc., and, and and running water. We're teaching them what not to do in the ocean, what not to do in the mountains, and that preserves us as a people and as a uh, culture. My next guest has been following me around. We first met each other in Denver, then he went off all over the world uh, managing Ritz-Carlton's, and now he's back in probably his favorite location in Maui at the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua. Andrew Rogers, how are you, sir? Thank you, Peter. Welcome back. You know, in a world in which Marriott is opening up one new hotel every 14 hours, I mean, that's not a typo, folks. That's what's going on. And Hilton's opening up one every day, uh, where you have 30-plus brands in the Marriott portfolio, Identity management um, and keeping your brand basically sacred has got to be a challenge for you. No doubt about it. You've got to give some, the customer something that you can only find at those certain brands. And in Ritz-Carlton, it's all about creating unique experiences. And we're lucky enough to do that in a beautiful location here Well, in your backyard here is not, not too bad. There's no doubt about it. I mean, when you think about where you can go in a 30-minute radius of this hotel, if you, if you embrace the concept of the hotel as enabler, you get them enabled to do just about anything. Absolutely. You know, people can, I always say they can do as much as they want or as little as they want when they get to this resort. I'm going to make a guess and tell me if I'm wrong. That the first day they get here, uh, they're just staying at the pool. <laughs> and then they want to see stuff. Absolutely. And then the question is, how do they see it? When do they see it? You know, in a world where we're trying to manage expectations and numbers, there are key times not to see something. Well, and I think that's a great point that you make. And I always make sure people don't book something every single day because just taking your time to kind of reconnect and explore the grounds and the property here is really important. Um, it's a sense of place is something that you can get in this location. Now, you're a guy who never leaves the property because you've got to manage it all the time. But right. if, you, if you do leave, where's your favorite place to go in Maui? Well, you know, the, the neatest place to go for me is just around the corner here. Just go out of the resort, make a left, and you can drive as far as you want. Stay on the main road, take a right, and go up into the So basically the your advice is just, take a left and keep going. That's it. That's By the it. way, speaking of taking a left and keep going, a word of advice to people who are going to rent a car when they go anywhere in Hawaii, whether it's this island or the neighbor islands, you know, everybody wants to go rent a Jeep. 
and they all want and, and they and the Jeeps look pretty cool. They're the ugliest colors I've ever seen. They're orange or vomit green or whatever. But off-road driving is not legal in Hawaii. So why are you renting a Jeep? Is it a style moment? Well, you know, now they make them with the soft tops, and so they're so great just to pull down and then go for a ride. Four doors. You can't beat it. And, you know, many people pull off the side of the road here because they want to go to the beach or right. just kind of tuck up and get a great vantage point to watch the sunset. And just outside the resort to the left here is the most beautiful point at Honolulu Bay that you'll ever see. Right. So, But you don't have to have a, a Jeep to do it. You can do anything you want. True. Right? It's a, people think they're Magnum P.I. They're, they're recreating <laughs> their, you know, the 1980s. But the point is, drive around the island because this island has about six different distinct personalities absolutely and out here on Kapalua it's so much different than just around the corner 10 minutes away in Kanapali and people should get out and see it is the guy still jumping off the rock at night yes yes they still are right <laughs> yeah. but a lot of people do it informally now just around the corner here oh yeah. but you didn't tell me that yeah no <laughs> but there are other hotels where they, they light the torches and that one guy goes eh, and goes in that's exactly right down in Kanapali off Black Rock off Black Rock so yeah. they're still doing it yeah they still do back when I was on ABC on a show that most of you don't remember called the home show with Gary Collins and Sarah Purcell. We did a very funny bit where Will Schreiner and I both lit the torches and jumped off the rock. Hmm. He came up and I didn't. (laughs) It was a gag, but here I am. I made it. What's the biggest surprise for first timers coming to Maui? I think that the most unique thing about Maui is the fact that typically people come for the water and they want to get into the ocean, but then they realize that the land and the uplands here are just absolutely fantastic. And that is probably the biggest difference in our location than most others around the world when you go to the beach. Now, this is the fourth time for you on an island. That's correct. Right? You were in Jamaica, you were in St. Thomas, uh, down in Florida too, right? Yep, down in South Florida, now back here for the second time. So you are an island guy. Yes, sir. You're a water guy. I like it, yeah. Me too. And the thing is, it's about the pace, though, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, there are a lot of vacation places that, you know, like Miami, doesn't have a slow pace, Mm -hmm. right? It really doesn't. This place does. Yeah, and I think that's why people choose to come here on vacation, but also choose to stay and live here. Because when you get that day off or you get that extra day and you can just sit around and relax and enjoy, there's nothing quite like it in Maui. And then last, but definitely not least, you know, the most overused word right now in in the lexicon of travel is sustainable. Everybody says they're sustainable. Nobody knows what that means. Uh, But you have to be sustainable here because you can see cause and effect immediately if you're not. That's exactly right. Plus, being 2,500 miles from uh, any other landmass, it's important to be conscious of that because you have limited resources and everything has to be either flown in or barged in. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker. The Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, The Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. 
Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. 